Hello and welcome to Making and Doing. My name's Graham Newman. I'm the founder of Design School Asia. Throughout this series of programs, I'm asking leading creative, technology and business industry experts how their practice is responding to change and how this change can foster cultural, economic and social benefit in Southeast Asia. In today's extended episode of Making and Doing, Design Research meets Medical Science Research, we are with two of the world's leading medical research scientists from Moru, the Mahedol Oxford Tropical Medicine Research Unit. Firstly, we'll hear from Associate Professor Dr. Lawrence von Seidlein, who coordinates malaria elimination efforts from the Greater Mekong subregion, and previously coordinated the Healthy Homes in Tropical Zones project, a story of unintended consequences that propose using the materials, methods and architectural designs found in rural homes in Southeast Asia as a sustainable solution to those family dwellings in sub-Saharan Africa, as the two regions share a similar tropical climate. These house modifications could enhance comfort and reduce health risks, such as mosquito-borne infectious diseases like malaria. If there's a strong political will and you do it long enough and you put the resources behind it, it can be done. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's our experience with malaria elimination. And later we'll be talking to Associate Professor Dr. Peg Yong Chea, founder and current head of bioethics and engagement, whose work identifies and addresses ethical issues to the success of clinical trials, particularly when working with vulnerable populations. Pregnant women, if they go to a clinic, a hospital, and you tell them, oh, I'm sorry, we haven't got a drug that we've already studied in pregnant women, so I'm sorry, we have to use this test medication on you. But that's worse. Established in 1979 as a research collaboration between Mahedol University, Oxford University and the UK's Wellcome Trust, Moru conducts targeted clinical trials and public health research that aim to discover and develop appropriate, affordable interventions that measurably improve the health of people living in resource-limited parts of the world. The core of Moru's activities remain patient-centred clinical research and the laboratory mathematical and economic modelling work and academic and logistical activities needed to support this, including design research. Rewind to 1978 when Professor Bruce Archer at the Royal College of Art published Time for a Revolution in Art and Design Education. Archer suggested in this paper that design research methods themselves would require original development since design contains subjects for inquiry and kinds of knowing which do not lend themselves to conventional scientific or speculative inquiry. Since then, much has changed for the better. Leading journals, in particular Shergi, the Journal of Design, Economics and Innovation, advocates a framework for economic and social value creation, and this includes design expertise applied to public healthcare. So what can design research bring to medical research? The answer lies somewhere in between human-centered design principles and qualitative research to disseminate the theories, methods and principles of the medical science research. For example, designers, medical scientists and community leaders can co-create cultural probe kits to get unique insights and exceptional engagement to understand the community in advance of fieldwork and use ethnographic and other anthropological participatory research methods to support the core medical science research project. Again, at a community engagements level, design researchers can draw on their expertise in qualitative insight development, iteration, prototyping and modelling, 
and other forms of non-verbal, non-visual communication, such as role-playing and methods found in kinesthetics, the study of body motion, including haptic forms and play to analyze, identify and design specific experiences that resonate with the community through empathy. And for projects similar to the Healthy Homes in Tropical Zones, design practitioners can support medical science research projects by drawing on their knowledge of local materials, processes and inherent making skills and techniques as the roots of design are founded in craft that produces cultural advantage at the community level. Design research won't save the world, medical science research might, and to a greater extent recently has, as the role of design in solving public healthcare challenges and supporting medical science research becomes embedded, the next five years of design education and research within this context are critical. And if we are to produce multi-professional designers and researchers who specialise in these cross-disciplinary fields, research and development of postgraduate programmes are essential to meet this need and one would like to see more collaboration across faculty and institution, such as Mahidol Oxford's collaboration with KADK, the Royal Danish Academy of Fine Arts, the RCA School of Design and Helen Hamlin Design Centre, Imperial College Medical Faculty, and the Helix Centre, based at St Mary's Hospital in London, is another example of what is possible with the right leadership, funding and mindset. Perhaps it is the right time for the leading universities in Bangkok to realise the value of design and design research for public healthcare by funding projects specific to those communities who need the most help in our region. Design meets medical design research, right now on Making and Doing. Um, so what we are doing is uh, trying to eliminate malaria and this is going on for the last 50 years or something like this, attempts to eliminate malaria. Um, so they're coming new tools and we're trying, our job as researchers is to evaluate new tools, how they can be used to eliminate malaria. But we have some baseline um, methods to, to deal with malaria and that is mostly um, case detection, early and accurate case detection and then appropriate treatment. That's basically the foundation which we are dealing with in the elimination of malaria. Then uh, malaria is a vector-borne disease. That means it's transmitted by mosquitoes. So we also have um, very solid methods to reduce the, the vector burden and by that reducing the transmission. And that consists out of impregnated bed nets and uh, insecticides which you can spray. Uh, in the past, before the insecticides became so popular, there were also other methods that you would change the environment and do modifications in the environment. And that is becoming very attractive now again when there is so much insecticide resistance. Mm. So that's another branch of, uh, of malaria elimination that has to be thought of. Now, our job here as medical researchers is that we are working on the appropriate treatment on the one hand side. We are trying to improve the malaria treatment and make sure when there are resistant strains coming up that we change the treatment accordingly, that we catch these strains as well and provide adequate treatment. And then we are also thinking about new, um, new methods. For example, one of our major research projects was uh, mass drug administrations. So you have the theory that if you would treat everybody in a certain geographically defined area, everybody to treat them at the same time, then there should be no, no, no malaria. 
And so we are trying to use that method and it has been tried for a hundred years. I mean, since the first mm. time probably um, malaria treatment became available within weeks, somebody thought, why don't we treat everybody at the same time and get rid of it? So that's around for a hundred years and it's not an overwhelming success or complete success for two reasons, because if you have a population in a community, there are always between five and 10% who say no. We don't want to participate in this. Yeah. Hmm. That's just a law of nature. So if, if in, in a community there's always 5-10% of people who do not want to participate in what the others want to do. I think if you would go into a community and say everybody gets $10 now, there are 5% in the community and say no, we don't want your $10. Keep hmm. them to yourself. We don't want to have anything to do with you. It's just that's how human beings are. So even incentivizing? That does not work. It's no. not enough. There's always a certain percentage who, who just feel reluctant, hesitant to participate. Yes. And, and I mean, we are now facing this with COVID, of course, with COVID vaccinations. That's a big issue. Uh, how, how to engage everybody in a community to participate in something. And that has been a problem for malaria and, um, uh, prevention for, for a long time. That we are aware of this, 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 mm. this problem. How to bring a community together and fight uh, a disease very tricky to do so that's one of the, the reasons why mass drug administrations are not as successful as they should be in theory so that that's that's one the, if, if the coverage is not a hundred percent you basically don't reach it and then we are doing these experiments because we have only finite amounts of money available we mm. can only do it in relatively small communities and as soon as you do this if somebody from that community spends a couple of nights somewhere else, comes back infected, re-imports the disease, or visitors coming from the areas which we have not treated, and they come into the into the community, uh, they import, re-import the disease. So it takes three months or something like this, and then you are exactly where you were before, or mm. sometimes it lasts six months. But but it's, it is really tricky. So, I mean, if, if to do this successfully, you have to do it in huge regions or in islands, and there it works. So, for example, there's an island in uh, Vanuatu called Anyetium and yes. they did this 20 years ago and successful and they have managed to eliminate malaria from that island and I think they also tried it in, in, as one of the tools in, in, in China and that was also quite successful if, if, you, if there's a strong political will and you do it long enough and you put the resources behind it, it can be done mm -hmm. so that's, that's our experience with malaria elimination I'd like to explore this uh, area of community engagement with you from a, a design side as well, because I believe there is a natural symbiotic relationship between design research and medical science research. So Richard Buchanan, who is an incredibly influential uh, professor of design, suggested many years ago that design is now the fourth order of design which is the design of systems and the design of environments. And it looks at how people relate to each other within these systems. And it appears to have similarities of, of, of how medical science research builds trust in the community. So uh, we are seeing a convergence of design research practice and medical science research practice. Is that happening in this region as well? Yeah. That's what we're trying to do all the time, designing trials, designing interventions. Do you see any collaboration with design researchers 
For example, at the Royal College of Art in London, there is now a design research for healthcare master's programme, which works with Imperial College to look at this area of design, science and technology and kind of build, you know, build an ecosystem around how design and uh, medical research can work together particularly with um, structuring projects for uh, community engagement and using design methods such as we would start with you know project definition and then build some empathy into it we would do some qualitative research we would then design and iterate test and prototype and this is kind of the the world that designers work in to deliver projects this is a cyclical methodology that was defined at Stanford Design School. So for our master administrations, we did not have the help from some professional designers, but it has not been, from my perspective, other people may think differently about it, it has not been overwhelmingly successful in the sense that we really did not figure out what makes everybody want to participate in our master administration in this intervention. And we did a lot. We, I, I think most of our energy for this project, which went on over five years, um, went into getting the community engagement aspects right. And for that, we worked with a lot of qualitative scientists, social scientists, who did a lot of different types of interviews with the communities and trying to find out what people want and how can we motivate them and how can we mobilize them to participate in this. And it's, of course, as you would expect, different in from one community to the next and then from one region to the next, from one province to the next, from one country to the next. It's, it's, it's hugely different so that the interventions that we then used for community engagements were adapted always to that particular spot. So in one place, for example, people like the idea of gambling a lot and won't like to have a lottery. So everybody who shows up for the intervention on that day gets a ticket or two tickets and then can win something in a lottery. But in other places that may be inappropriate and they felt that the community should get something in return for participating in the intervention. And uh, it, that was in another place where then uh, a water supply system was built for the whole village. And uh, so there was a, a line from, the, from, from a water source was brought to these sim tanks and the sim tanks were built by the project and then that provided uh, uh, water supply for the entire village. That's what the, in, in village meetings was kind of figured out this is what we would like to have in in return for participating. So there's a huge range, but at the end of the day, it's so, so what it works out is that we as scientists expect that people understand what we are doing. That's kind of the underlying yes. assumption. Yes. But to, to get to this point, to understand what we are doing, I mean, we have to go through schools and then university and then do specialization. And you, it, I mean, it's 20, 30 years schooling that we had. And we cannot expect that people who, who have been in a village in a rural part of Laos have the same understanding. And trying to have a couple of village meetings and conferring these entire ideas of malaria transmission doesn't really work. So our uh, insight at the end of it is that, it, I mean, it probably would have been clear from moment one, is that it all comes down to trust. Uh, so that the, the, the community feels that you are not doing something against their interest in the first instance and actually there is something for them to gain. And that's these, these trust relationships are incredibly difficult to, to manage, yes. basically. And uh, it's, uh, it, it, it takes a minute to lose it, of course. It, uh, 
one stupid uh, rumor and the, the whole you have to start all over again. And I guess we, we should also unpack how do we actually communicate that trust? I mean, it might not necessarily be in words and pictures. You know, it, it's participatory research and your, your studies and your fieldwork are in the community. So are, are there tools for uh, perhaps explaining what you do other than you know, just using words and pictures? I mean, you know, it would be inappropriate to turn up with a PowerPoint presentation in, in a yeah. village. But Which there must is, of be... course, our natural medium. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Let, let's put up a screen and explain it with uh, bullet yes. points what we're doing to do. It doesn't work, right? Mm. But I think what, for example, would work is if you set up a clinic and in preparation of such a master administration that you are present in the village for 12 months, and if there's a critical delivery, some difficulties, there is somebody from your team there who helps doing that delivery pr appropriately and to make sure that people understand once these mass drug administrations are finished, you're going to continue to be there. So if there's a problem afterwards in the month after the mass drug administration, that you still have a presence there and people can rely on you. And that's something you have to build. Um, yes. Just by being there, I don't think you have to do many presentations because people have been fooled so often with mm. uh, with people saying things. The, the what is it? Snake oil salesman coming through and telling them things, and this person trying to sell them things, and everybody makes promises. So you have to deliver and be present. Yes. Yes. That's yes. that's pretty convincing. I think that really resonates with design research because one of our methods is using uh, cultural probes, where if if we were doing field work and collaborating with you in the community we, we could um, you know have a, a box of cultural probes which which could have pencils and pens and uh, you know a, a, a diary or a journal but just ask participants to actually record what they're doing in a qualitative method and and then take that data and look for trends and look for you know levels of acceptance and and have visual references but also written reflection on the success of uh, the, the engagement so I can I can see there there is a potential symbiotic relationship there as well I, I think it's going to be complete super actual and super necessary for the COVID vaccine rollouts I mean it's, it's it is critical so in the beginning and what is going to happen now for the next couple of months the way I see it is there's not enough vaccine and more people want vaccine than they can get it so simple simple situation but then when when you have reached say a saturation 45 50 percent of the population and the other 50 percent say no well maybe not um, no it's not a priority for me no I'm not coming then to start convincing more people which is going to be really kind of probably a, a, a the major subject in six months time um, the people have to think exactly about this how do you establish trust in in London in in Berlin in Paris uh, it's, it's going to be everywhere, this, this this problem to convince people that you are acting in their interest and not against their interest. Yes. So this is not longer something which is for, for remote villages in the greater Mekong sub-region. This is something which, which is going to affect everybody. That yes. The communal interest versus the uh, individual interest. And we could we could draw him on, on marketing practice there because we're going to have the, uh, the early adopters 
but then if you look at the long tail of it and, and actually you know using trying trying to have uptake over an extended period of time there are advocates of the vaccine and there will be those that you know and there, are, there are a few snicks we know that these five ten percent we talked about earlier they, they are not going to participate but you have these hesitant people which are maybe 20 30 percent of the population which are thinking about it and want to for themselves decide whether this is good for them or bad for them and these are people you can you can talk with and and make your case to them I, I hope that it's going to play out this way yes i hope so too uh, I, I also hope that there's just not going to be a grab on vaccines from affluent countries that there has been a grab from you know obviously the uk the, canada the, the is leading US. i think every canadian has six doses or something like yes, this yes yes at um, least three times more than they need uh, yes. already bought by the government yes and closer to home hong kong has eight million already and singapore has seven million so it's basically the 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 population plus ten percent there has been a, a grab um, of what's available at the moment. So the, the challenge is to actually you know, look at other ASEAN members um, and, and how quickly they can actually roll this out. Yeah, it's going to be absolutely fascinating how this is going to play out because also people could think, in say, if you live in an African country where it has not been such a big problem in terms of incidence and death, um, that coming from that disease that they are feeling well it's not our top priority and what vaccine are we getting anyway so they're using these mRNA vaccines in Europe and the United States and we are getting some vector vaccine from Russia or China well let's think about this again this is kind of obviously we are getting again something second grade as, as usual what people in the rich countries don't want to give to us and that's not good, a good starting point to convince people that it's really in their best interest to participate exactly Exactly. Exactly. You mentioned Africa. I'd like to. I'd like to move on. And I read your Healthy Houses in East Africa project using designs mm-hmm. and constructions from this part of the world. And in the book, which summarises the research, you took the open structures of bamboo houses from the Maysot region of Thailand, and also the colonial Dutch houses in Jakarta and the black and white bungalows in, in Singapore, and then transposed that to sub-Saharan Africa. So what we what we were thinking about is that the parts of tropical Africa and tropical Asia have the same climate zone. That's a hot, humid climate. So it's hot at night and it gets hotter during the day and then it gets hot again at night. So that's very different from, say, places like Arabia where you have cooling down at night and then you can cool down the entire building. Here in the regions where we are living, and it's the same in Africa, um, there, there is a hot, humid air around all the time and you can't cool down the building uh, during night. So how can you deal with this? And the way the Asians deal with this or have dealt with it is that they elevate the building. Yes. So they put it on stilts and then they get good airflow through the building. And the interesting thing is that you can your body comfort, the comfort zone can be extended by increasing the, the, the ventilation. So um, the, the example that we often use is why are so many people sitting on a summer evening along a piece uh, along the water? And the reason for that is that it's that it's the, the, the cooling air is coming there and you feel comfortable sitting there. And using this effect that it's the, that airflow cools you down when you're sweating 
is increased when you lift up the, the building. And then you build it in a very porous way that the air can flow through it. So you need at least two windows, one on each side, not next to each other, so that you can get good airflow through the building. So this is a principle that Asians use just instinctively. And if you travel from he around here, Bangkok, through Thailand, um, if you go to the east and Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, it's you always find that at the side of the streets. It's very rare to find a building on the on the ground floor, and that's then a building which is kind of for for business, for for government agency, and and it's air conditioned. They they can afford this, but yes. private people who cannot afford air conditioning have to rely on this good airflow. And we were asking, why are they not using this in Africa? This this same principle. Why do they have mud huts? And why is it so? Uh, and and we find these mud huts once we start looking for it um, it doesn't make any difference whether you're in East Africa in Kenya or Tanzania or Mozambique or you go towards the west and uh, you, you are in Namibia West Africa the uh, Senegal and so on the, the building types throughout sub-Saharan Africa are these mud huts they are on the ground they are very heavy heavy walls it's a bottle and doubt we call that you use sticks and then fill in the spaces between the sticks and stones that you fill in there with with, with mud and then you put a thatch roof on top of it, and that's the building type that people have been using for a long time. And there is very little advance. So if people then have money and want to do something, they're building this kind of uh, idea of a, of a McMansion that they kind of built solid cement walls, but again on the floor. But this idea of uh, building lighter buildings, which have increased airflow, doesn't really come into uh, mm. uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, and we don't understand why. Mm. Why is that? Why? Um, is are certain buildings traditions in one continent and in another continent with the same climate zone why are they not using this which looks to us as a very rational way of cooling down houses and then we use these Asian designs and transferred them basically to um, to fir our first experiment was in a part of Tanzania and we working together with the school of design in, um, in Copenhagen Denmark KADK and there, there are these architects, we are very interested in this principle, particularly my, our collaborator, Jakob Knudsen, who is now the dean of that school. And so they are really interested in using the, uh, different available technologies to improve the, the health and the comfort in living in these buildings. Well, comfort is maybe the wrong word because it means something, it's, it's, it's really health, isn't it? Um, yes. So if, you, if you are too hot in the building, it's uncomfortable, but it's also unhealthy. Mm. So it's, we are not talking here about a luxury. We're talking about something very basic mm. that people should have to be able to sleep well and to, to, mm. to, to thrive under these circumstances. Mm. Did you find any correlation between the, the kind of, from an anthropological point of view, there is a um, blurring between public and private space in houses in Asia and, you know, families living together. Is that the same in Africa or, or, or is that concept of a family or a shared abode different? I, I thought there's a lot of similarities. We didn't, I don't think we went into this and, and did detailed research on it. But my impression is that you have families living in compounds in Asia. Uh, so the, the buildings are much more open and you have this uh, kind of a deck where people sit and co so that the, the, the public space comes into the private home that people walk down the road and then the, 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 the family members sit up on the deck a little bit elevated and there's a basic ladder going up and if you are out of the house you lift up the ladder and put it to the side some people know this is locked 
we are not a, not supposed to come here. In contrast, in in Africa, when you have a mud hut, there's also a space in front of the the mud hut, which is usually there are little stools or something like this. This is where food is prepared, and when you walk down the street, then people talk to you from that. The neighbors talk to each other and have their, their conversation. Yes. So the idea of the public space going into the private home is not so different mm. between mm. Africa and, 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 and Asia. Mm. But the construction is completely different. Yeah, so the materials and what, what, what's available. I mean, we're very fortunate because, I mean, bamboo is one of the most you know mm. u- ubiquitous materials here, and it's such a fantastic... But you will be surprised to hear that. Maybe you will be surprised to hear that we find a lot of bamboo in Africa as well because it's the same climate zone. So it, it is there. It's right. not something which is uh, which is kind of a completely foreign uh, foreign material. So, but people are not using it in to the degree they are using it in Asia. It's not complete not using it, but it's not very popular. It's not used for crafts, and the, the skills of using it are much less developed than in in Asia, where there is extensive work with with bamboo and also growing it and cultivating it. Mm. In uh, in Africa, it is there, and people cut it down, but they, it's it's not as much. And of course, bamboo you should prepare and and making sure that it's that, that it lasts yes. in certain ways. Yes, yes. So we are trying to 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 work on that as well. So, for example, when we uh, in in that first experiment that we did and using this Asian building type in in Magoda village in northern Tanzania, uh, we also brought a team from Mesot of of craftsmen um, to build exactly a Mesot house out of bamboo. So we got the bamboo locally. We had to look for it for a while um, and, and and cut down the so they cut down the uh, the bamboo stalks that they needed and then used that to build a, exactly a, the same house that they would build in Mesot in in Magoda and just to see how that is accepted and and it worked rather nicely so there there was no we had the material it was possible to do it people moved in they liked it we go back there at least once or twice a year and 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 visit because we just want to see how this is evolved whether on the one hand side whether the building is still standing and it is it hasn't collapsed over five years so that 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 is a good thing and then we want to look whether people are imitating it and we find that um, that the, the, the villagers look around and see okay we could do this so the, the bamboo is a little bit more popular now than it was it's not that it has completely changed in five years that everybody is using bamboo to build the house obviously but uh, but it becomes in, integrated in their building practices in right. the village. So I think that, that that's the whole idea of how we want to uh, propagate this and promote mm. it, is mm. that people see it and then they, they imitate mm. uh, so that over time there is there are more of these different building ideas come into villages and people are using it. And I think this this subject has been, you know, th- there's been attempts to tackle this subject for so many years. And I, I'm reminded through this conversation of uh, the work of Buckminster Fuller, the the, the architect mm-hmm. and innovator. And in the 1960s, he developed uh, the geodesic dome mm-hmm. with the intent of having, you know, affordable housing that could be basically flat packed and and shipped in. So there is there is a parallel again with. Yeah, uh, he did something really fascinating, Buckminster Fuller. He also said, "What is the weight of?" your building like like you measure a boat right yes you have had to say look this is this is the weight the tonnage of this of this boat and he said this is the same for buildings what is the weight of your building and if you asked 50 years ago an architect what is the the total weight of your building they would just say what what are you asking mm. about because there wasn't a concept which wasn't used for buildings but it's absolutely critical and now with sustainable building technologies that you have to use because you can't assume that it's infinite for the future um, people are starting to think about this much more and we know exactly how much 
at our building base and what how much material goes in and how how sustainable it is and how it can be re reused. That's something we think about now for for each of our buildings long yes. before before we, we, we start putting anything on the ground. I think it's a very interesting touch point and Buckminster Fuller goes in and out of fashion through through you know pe periods of design education and I mean some of some of his work is, is is absolutely you know on trend now in terms of his engineering ideas and you know his his vision for technology and having multi-professional practitioners, comprehensive education, and that includes areas of science and social sciences and design to come together. His vision was to have this comprehensive um, you know, design perspective, but also draw on the core competencies of um, you know, anthropology and uh, medicine and science. And um, It's pretty tricky if you're an architect and you're coming into this with the idea that you want design pretty buildings and nice facades and then suddenly you end up with doing something completely different. How sustainable are the materials that are put into the building? How can I minimize the amount of materials that I put into to keep it to the absolute minimum? And then the advantages of having a lighter building compared to a heavier building. So if it's light and you can have air going through, mm. right, that's that has the advantage that it's naturally cooling. But what happens if there's a storm and if you're in an area where it's cooling down in the winter and you have to protect it against yes. against the cold, all these, these things, it's, mm. it's absolutely fascinating. Mm. Lawrence, you mentioned KADK School in Copenhagen earlier, and I think this is, this is a really good example, similar to the Royal College, of where we are we are looking uh, to explore the areas of medical science research and design research to quite diverse groups of people and skills, but will the, the intent to share knowledge for innovation. I believe design can make a positive contribution to healthcare research, and you know, just finally. Do you see this continuing to have multi-professional perspectives for design research practitioners and for medical research practitioners to work and to co-collaborate in the future? Yeah, our example is that we are very interesting in this this environment where you're living and that preventing diseases by having healthier healthier buildings basically, and there is a very close interaction I think between the um, between medicine and buildings. So if you think about it, there's the the air, which is now of course super interesting with with COVID. How can you get enough good air into a room, healthy air, which is not infected? That's something that engineers have really have to think about now in a completely in a way they haven't thought about it before. And I find it fascinating walking throughout Bangkok and just realizing how many buildings you can't open the windows because it isn't designed in that way. So it is designed to be to maximize the return on investment. That's that's the underlying idea is how can you make it as, as cheap as possible. But that's not necessarily the healthiest way. I would feel a lot more comfortable if I stay in a hotel room where I can open the windows. And that's really difficult in many places. And then you basically have to trust that the person who has built your house had your interest in mind and is providing healthy air in your room. Uh, it's, it's a bit of a stretch sometimes. So that's one thing, the air. Then, then is the temperature appropriate? Um, 
the interesting you, we talked earlier about Hong Kong and Hong Kong only can function because there is air conditioning before there was air conditioning Hong Kong didn't work yes that's I think we can agree on mm. that mm. so what is happening if you run out of air conditioning and how are you gonna do that that's a, that's a, that's a big question isn't it wouldn't it make sense to make it a little bit more accessible that you have the possibility to open the window that you don't totally and entirely all the time have to rely on on air conditioning yes because I think in Hong Kong and also in, in in Singapore this is this is so important now where you know school children are locked down and they can't go out and there are health implications and there's a lot of obesity as well and you know just just trying simple things like trying to having air and not relying on air conditioning and having natural air flows I think would be um, you know very favorable constructing cities in a way that you can bicycle that you can walk that you can run which is really difficult this is something nobody in Bangkok is thinking about I mean it's it's really difficult to walk from one street to another because there are no pedestrian ways and the older you get the more the higher risk is that a car finally hits you it's it, it's dangerous to a degree because it's not planned it's not designed there this yeah. is something that designs should come in yes. and it hasn't come in yet well I noticed he came in this morning on your bicycle yeah, so I do I do ask you risk. to be careful <laughs> because there are not many people it's not catching on people don't like yeah. they use their motorbikes yeah. but that's not so healthy either it's, it's, it's actually quite dangerous and in, in many ways it's not and it doesn't help you to, to exercise you don't increase yeah. your metabolic rate by doing that well please ride safely in the future because we do need you uh, dr von sideline thank, thank you, you so much. much thank you thank you It's this big thing called design thinking. Is this, is this it? It is. Um, yeah. I don't like that word. I believe it's a misnomer. Um, oh God, I just don't understand what it means. <laughs> it's design methods. It's okay. been around for a long time. Just certain companies have been very successful marketing themselves with design okay. thinking. So this has actually been around since the 90s. It is taking how design is taught Mm -hmm. founded in constructivism and experiential learning mm -hmm. and and applying that to cultural social and economic problems so it's not designed for artifact yeah it's it's the process of design and okay. using design and qualitative methods uh, to inform uh, right. behavioral change okay Pete young could can you briefly explain um, your role with, within Moru, specific to bioethics and public engagement? So I head up a team called Bioethics and Engagement. So it is, um, as the name says, both bioethics and engagement. So we conduct lots of research on tropical medicine, such as malaria, uh, tuberculosis, uh, antimicrobial resistance, and most recently, COVID. We work with populations that are deemed vulnerable all the time, people who are poor, disadvantaged, uh, pregnant women, migrants. And all our research has got an ethical dimension, more than a regular study, because they are in these poor, disadvantaged populations. So the ethics is very important. We, just, we need to conduct research because we need evidence-based medical care for these populations, but we need to do it ethically and to generate information and uh, evidence to improve um, their medical care. 
So that's the ethics bit of it. The engagement bit of it is a link between the medical research and the communities that host us or the communities that benefit from our research. So how do we get our research to be ethical um, and to be impactful? So that's why we engage with the communities we serve, so that our research is more responsive, conducted sensitively within these populations and adhere to community um, sensitivities and to encourage more acceptance uh, to, um, with, our, with our research work. And that, that raises a number of interesting things I'd like to unpack with you. I mean, first of all is actually getting participatory consent to a community um, who might not necessarily know their rights in terms of uh, the data being collected. A lot of design research is qualitative methods. We would uh, engage in one-on-one -on -one or group moderation uh, and then ask the participants verbally for consent and normally we would retain the data for seven years. But how, how do you get consent for not, not only the data collected but also to, to ensure anonymity and, and the, these kind of ethical questions to communities who might not necess necessarily know their rights in these areas. That's a, consent is a huge part of our work, so, and it's at the heart of ethical research. Well, for consent to be valid, it has to hit three elements. One is participants have to be informed so it's the duty of the researcher to inform the participant and then they have to understand you. So that's a second element. And the third element is they have to voluntary consent. So they don't should feel like they can do it voluntarily. Now these three elements are really important when it comes to conducting research ethically. And we sometimes use engagement to deal with it. For example, engagement um, with participants means that um, we talk to them, consult with them to make sure our information materials are context specific. We use the words that they would understand. And um, we also understand how they might be vulnerable. So we, by involving the com uh, communities and talking to them at great length, we will understand what might make them not voluntary to consent to participate. So for example, if if, there is, if we know that there is a lack of like healthcare access in this population, if you come in with a research study that offers free healthcare, it's hard for them to refuse. Mm. So we, we want to find out all these things to make sure that research, the consent is voluntary and uh, you know, information is appropriately given and consent is uh, ethical in, as such. Um, just a little um, point here, everyone has to give um, written consent individually unless there's an exception. So verbal consent is only um, allowed if the, in rare circumstances. And what you talked about, participatory or group um, consent can happen prior to the individual consent. And in, that, in those sessions or in those activities, we can use things like uh, group meetings, we can use science arts collaborations. We, if for malaria, um, you might know we, we have this project, we use uh, drama to explain what malaria is. For malaria research to, to happen, people need to understand about malaria. So we use um, all kinds of innovative methods to make sure people understand the disease first, then the research. 
I wanted to unpack that again, but you mentioned drama. I wanted to ask you, how are you explaining science and research to remote communities affected by tropical diseases? And, and how do you convey these messages? Uh, interesting question. And I'm going to be very annoying because I haven't got the answer. The answer lies with the communities. If you want to conduct a study in rural Cambodia, you go to rural Cambodia and chat to the people. And with those dialogues, we will then find out what the community prefers in terms of how they want to be, uh, how one they want to understand, communicate, right? For example, the communities we worked in in Cambodia, after talking to them, and we quickly understood that, printed leaflets, forget it, no one wants that. So we, we ended up with using a drama team to act out what we mean by malaria, what does it mean by fever, uh, how, we, how one can catch malaria, um, and in this case, going into the forest without a protection, without a, a long sleeve clothing, that's how you get malaria. So visual um, 3D methods, if you like, were important in that particular context. It doesn't always work, not for all contexts, but in, in that context, yes, it works. You can imagine rural Cambodia where lots of people are illiterate and nothing happens in those villages. If you have a drama team, wow, everybody comes out. So a lot of this is actually drawing on anthropology and uh, ethnographic research eth yeah. where, where you are immersing yourself in the community and understanding the DNA of how it works together and then reflecting on that and looking at the most uh, appropriate way to communicate, which is something in design practice on you know how to actually how to actually deliver and get buy-in and engagement to these research projects that you're working on. Exactly. It very much resonates with an area of design research called kinesthetics. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it obviously comes from the word kinetic. And um, in terms of the way design researchers prototype and model a project can be through kinesthetics. So mm -hmm. role playing, for example, and doing drama and, and putting yourself in the situation of the service user and the service provider. Mm -hmm. and this is what we call human-centered design. Mm -hmm. So everything is uh, structured around the uh, service user, uh, the, the person who's going to benefit from, from this work. And uh, village drama against malaria that you've talked about very much interested me about how that's so constructively aligned to what design research is looking at now. Do you see there could be potential collaborative um, opportunities for design research to inform medical science research and perhaps have more symbiotic relationships be between the two disciplines? Absolutely. I think design research is uh, very important and I think it should be used more and more, uh, especially in the area of engagement. So we, it's, it's really difficult to to engage with communities and we need all the tools we, we, we can get our hands on to consult with communities, to involve the public in research. It is, so public, the, the term that's used in the UK is community, no, sorry, uh, is patient and public involvement. What it means is we want to embed public voices into research so that the research is more responsive. But this is easier said than done, embedding public voices. Yeah, right, how do we do that? 
but we can do it by design. And we can use design methods to, to do that. The, the, the project you mentioned, uh, or we, we talked about village drama against malaria. I mean, we didn't think about it theoretically, but it is, you know, we went to the villages, we, we engaged with schools, we talked to the principals, village heads, um, and, and got them to um, co-create um, a piece of drama and an event for the village. And the event was held at the village square, which by design attracts people already to, yes. to their location. Um, and then obviously we had a big stage, loud music, and people came out. So yes, I would like to do more of that. Excellent. And last year you did win the University of Oxford Vice-Chancellor's Choice Award for Public Engagement, and that is this project. Yes, indeed. So many congratulations on that. That's, that's an incredible achievement, Peg Young. Thank you. Many design researchers listening to this podcast will be particularly interested in how you ethically engage with vulnerable groups. For example, you know, children, pregnant women, migrants, refugees, people that have been trafficked uh, in this part of the world. What insights can you give to design researchers on best practice uh, just, just to, you know, make sure that there are principles and ethics because I don't think there is a rule book to this in this part of the world. I think what we want to avoid is is conducting what we have called um, or what researchers have called or ethicists have called parachute research going in without knowing anything and then going out again getting your data and then going out again we don't want to do that what we want is to establish the relationships with communities we work in, we work with. Establishing relationships also takes various forms. One example is on the Thai Burmese border, we, we um, facilitated a community advisory board. And with the, with the board, um, so we work with a lot of migrants. It's really hard to, for us to chat to them, to reach migrants because they may not have time to talk to you, they're busy and they live in remote places. But the community advisory board we work with, they under, work with, they understand the migrant community. So we ask them about um, their insights, how to communicate with the community, whether these words mean anything to them, how to translate certain concepts in research to the local language, and how uh, to obtain consent for, for research. Going back to the question, what are the principles? The principles are understanding communities. Um, and I think key is understanding how they might be vulnerable to the pr- processes of the research. And, uh, and uh, to do that, we do, we do need a little bit of groundwork. And to go back to consent and voluntary consent, obviously when we ask people to, commun- to participate in research, we have to tell them what it's about, um, tell them there are alternatives to research, um, also explain what the risks and benefits are for conducting research. And one important thing we shouldn't forget is that many people are worried about us researchers conducting research on quote-unquote vulnerable communities. If you don't conduct research with these so-called vulnerable communities, they'll be even more vulnerable. Precisely. Because pregnant women, if they go to a clinic, a hospital, 
and you tell them, oh, I'm sorry, we haven't got a drug that we've already studied in pregnant women, so I'm sorry, we have to use this test medication on you. But that's worse. Yes. So we would like to involve them. However, we need to ensure that um, the research we conduct is ethical. So much of this uh, resonates with with design research practice. You know, having building building empathy first, uh, building a taxonomy of language or visual rhetoric uh, in order to communicate the principles of of the research. So I think there's so much that that we can draw on, and and as I believe, uh, medical science research and design research are are converging. Lastly, Pete Young, the vaccination rollout. In this, mm-hmm. in this part of the world. How's Thailand going to do it? Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't asked them. But uh, vaccination, that's a very, very uh, big topic. And vaccination, all, there's several issues. But one thing I want to address is what people have called vaccine hesitancy. So the reluctance of people to take uh, vaccines. And that is a problem that is not straightforward. So to ensure that um, the vaccine uptake is high, I think design comes into it in quite a big way. So we need to make sure, for example, that we communicate with people how the vaccines are developed. When we roll it out, we make sure that the location is, is accessible. We ensure that the people who administer the vaccines, the, the doctors, the nurses, are um, knowledgeable and could, it could be in a location that the people in the community trust and are, uh, are familiar with. So vaccine hesitancy has many facets. So you have the location, people, the vaccines itself, how we communicate um, and then the whole trust in the community um, is important. So the, the basic trusting trust in the government and healthcare system, I think that we need to understand that first. So, as you said, the ethnographic and anthropological research or baseline research or even a background understanding is quite important. Going back to your question, in Thailand, my view is that uh, probably the uptake will be quite high, but um, I can't say for sure. So I think there should be some basic... Um, a consultation with communities to see whether they, to see if there are segments in the community, be it um, any social demographics group who might be a bit worried about um, the safety, who, are, who might live very far away and cannot reach the hospital. So there are various reasons for this so-called hesitancy. So we just need to understand that to ensure that when we do roll out, we take into account all these factors. Well, let's hope that happens sooner than later. I would like to thank you for your incredible work that you're doing in this part of the world. And you can contact the Mahidol Oxford Tropical Medical Research Unit at their website, Uh, tropmedres.ac. That brings us to the end of today's programme. Our thanks to Dr. Lawrence von Seidlein and Dr. Peg Yong Chea for sharing their insights on how medical science research and design are making change happen. Making and Doing is produced by supervillain Dana Bluin. Join us at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Graham Newman, thanks for listening.